Our sermon text for this morning is 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read the second half of verse 10 down through 17. 2 Peter 2, 10b through 17. These are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord, but these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. All right, let's call the children down forward. All right. The verses that we just read continue the warning that we learned last Sunday about the danger of listening to people who pretend to be teaching about God but are really only saying what they want. We learn that people do this because it gives them a feeling of power. Now, what I mean is, you'd feel really important if people just listened to you and did everything you said, especially if they gave you lots of money and nice things. Well, fake ministers like this feeling a lot, and that makes them very dangerous. In the verses that we read, we learn that this is why God will punish these fake ministers. Now, the verses tell us three things about them. The first thing is that they are like senseless animals, just like cows can't read or write, things that people do. Fake ministers don't understand the ways of God and the true life of Christians. Just like a chicken doesn't understand people life, the fake ministers don't understand real Christian life. You see, there's two ways to know someone, right? If I asked you, do you know King David? Well, you could say, yes, but, but you know who he is, but you've never met him. But if I asked you, do you know Mrs. Brown? You'd probably all say, yes, she's my teacher. You know her because you've met her. And everyone turned around and looked up. (laughs) Fake ministers know about God. They know the things we say. They know the words that we use when we talk about God or talk about the Bible or talk about our Christian faith. But they don't know God in their hearts. They've never met Him. And so when they talk about God, they're careful to say things they think that people will like to hear. And that way, when they ask for gifts or money, people will say, You know, I should give him some money because he's a preacher. He always talks about God. And they don't understand that the person is just using God's name as a way to get the things that he wants. They're like cows or chickens who know when they're being called to get food, but they don't understand the words. The second thing our verses teach us about fake ministers is that they don't treat God's valuable things carefully. I bet your mom has some really nice dishes that she only gets out for special meals like Christmas or Thanksgiving. 
And during supper, she probably warns you many times to be very careful with those dishes because they're valuable. Maybe they were really expensive, or maybe they belong to your grandma. And if they get broken, they can't be replaced. Peter tells us that the fake ministers treat God's good gifts to his people the very same way that an animal would treat your mom's dishes. Would a cow be careful with an expensive glass? No, it'd probably just step on it and squash it into the mud. Well, that's the way that the fake ministers treat the things of God. God's, most especially, they stomp on God's good gift of love in the family. Now, you're still young to understand just how bad that is, but believe me, it is very evil. And the third thing that we learn from our verses today is that the fake ministers are going to be punished by God. They are very sinful. And when people follow them, it shows how sinful those people are too. They should know better. They believe untrue things about God because they don't read their Bibles and learn what the Bible teaches. And God uses this as a way to show who is and who isn't a real Christian. But our verses say something else actually much more serious. And that is that these fake ministers are kind of, kind of like rats. They need to be caught and killed because they cause so much damage. They make people and animals sick. They hurt crops. They can bite you and you can die from their bite. Now God is the one who will catch them and he is the one who will punish them. And the lesson for us is that we need to read our Bibles, study our Bibles, listen carefully to the sermons and to our Sunday school lessons so that we learn what the Bible really says and teaches. And that way we will be safe from people who are trying to trick us by saying things that sound nice but aren't true. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the blind, and in the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our series on Second Peter, and we're continuing through chapter 2 last Sunday. We learned of the doom of false teachers. By his word, God has informed us of the fact that there will always be fake false teachers around, and he has comforted us by guaranteeing that they will be judged. In our text this morning, we learn why they will be judged. We learn of the depravity of false teachers. Now, the more I read and studied this passage, the more I saw that it would require several sermons to adequately handle everything that the passage teaches. So I decided to settle on one particular point of the passage, which is really the center of our text, as the core of our message this morning. Now, we'll reference the other parts of the text, but I want to focus particularly on this section. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. 
This text then shows us the depravity of false teachers by showing us these three things. Number one, they are as void of heavenly wisdom as animals are of human reason. Secondly, they trample heavenly treasures like animals would trample human treasures. And thirdly, they are made for destruction like animals for the butcher. They are as void of heavenly wisdom as animals are of human reason. Our text says that the false teachers are like brute beasts. Literally, that is like irrational animals. Now, domesticated animals react and interact with humans in amusing ways. Nevertheless, there is an uncrossable chasm between even the most intelligent animal and the most senseless human. Humans were made in the image of God. Animals were not. Mankind is the pinnacle of creation, and the defining feature that sets man apart from animals is his possession of an immortal soul. I have no doubt that the wicked theory of Darwin has led us into many sinful ideas about nature. So for starters, people are not animals, and animals are not people. Now this is one of those things that should go without saying, but in the irrational world in which we live, there are people who have married and in their estimation started a family, but what they've actually done is not start a family, they've just bought a pet. I don't care how much you love your cat or your dog, it is not your child. I know it may annoy some people to hear that, but you can't pay proper honor to the distinction that God has ordained between man and beast if you view an animal as your child. We project human traits onto the animal world. Watch any nature documentary that you want, and sooner or later the narrator is going to start talking about wolves or caribou or what have you in terms that that imply ethics and morality and even civilization, as if there's some golden tablets with uh, the secret code of conduct that elk must live by. Human traits such as love and anger and jealousy and ambition and revenge are read into the behavior of animals. Behavior that is directed by nothing other than instinct. An instinct is defined as inherent and unalterable behavior guarded, uh, guided by tendencies below the conscious level. So there's no thought or deliberation on the part of a lion when it attacks a zebra. There's no song of love in a puppy's heart for his owner. We, because we don't live by instinct, we project this onto the world of brute nature because we have accepted the lie that people are just another type of animal. Now I know that seems way off the point, but it's an important piece of groundwork that must be laid because if we can't see the clear and impenetrable uh, barrier between man and beast, then how can we understand Peter's doctrine that false teachers behave like irrational animals and that that's a bad thing and that they're like brute beasts that should be destroyed? The irrationality of false teachers is expressed in several ways in our text. They're said to be presumptuous, self-willed. We'll come back to that one in a minute. They are said to be disrespectful of authority. They speak evil of things they don't understand. They counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They wallow in their deceptions even as they mingle among us because they're trying to win followers. 
They have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. That is a long and ugly list. And the heart of it is that this is behavior which is even below the level of brute beasts. In fact, brute nature has occasionally been used by God to put a roadblock in the path of false teachers. That's why Peter mentions the story of Balaam. Balaam was a freelance fortune teller who had some passing acquaintance with Israel's religion. And he was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to put a curse on Israel. Now God actually appeared to Balaam and told him not to go. But Balaam kept dickering with God to see if there was some way he could get around God's prohibition. Now in order to emphasize the folly and the wickedness of Balaam, God let him go, but then appeared in the form of the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword to block Balaam's path. Now Balaam's donkey saw the angel, Balaam did not. The donkey tried to steer clear three times, and one time actually crushed Balaam's foot. In a wild fit of rage, Balaam began beating the donkey with his staff, and then the Lord miraculously granted the donkey the power of speech, and the donkey rebuked Balaam for his sinful behavior. You know what, though? Balaam ignored what is surely one of the top ten miracles in the world's history. That's the irrationality of unbelief. It is not without reason that the book of Proverbs so often calls sin folly. And we've talked about this many times, but apart from the sovereign power of God, man is simply unable and unwilling to believe in God. That's why miracles strengthen the faith of those who believe and harden the hearts of those who don't. Think of Pharaoh. Read the book of Numbers and you'll find that after all of the miracles that Balaam was witness to and those that were actually wrought upon his own person, He ended up getting killed in battle against Israel when God justly punished Moab for the sin of Baal Peor. Now our second point flows right out of what we just said, and that is that they trample heavenly treasures like animals would trample human treasures. If you owned a $30,000 Rolex watch, that'd probably be the cheap end, but if you owned a $30,000 Rolex watch and it fell into the mud... You'd be as careful as possible to retrieve it, being careful not to get any water or mud inside it. But would your cows do the same? If you dropped that $30,000 Rolex watch in front of a cow, she'd probably just step on it. To her eye, it would be no different than a stick, a rock, or a corn cob. Dogs have been known to drop jewelry into the toilet. Swine, as Jesus said, would trample pearls underfoot. And this is the second way that our text describes the depravity of false teachers. The things which are really valuable, the things which should be dealt with carefully, handled with kid gloves, the things that should be treated with respect and honor, they trample in the mud because they're too self-serving to see things for what they're really worth. Now, it's going to take a certain amount of delicacy to say what has to be said here, so bear with me. You'll notice the multiple references to sexual sin in our text. This is not by mere coincidence. One of the straightest lines the Bible draws is between corrupt worship as the fruit of corrupt teaching and sexual immorality. And it is not mere metaphor. The very nature of the church is that its relationship to Christ is like marriage. And again, that's not simply a metaphor. God ordained marriage itself 
in order to depict the relationship between Christ and His church. That's clearly taught in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is the reason why unfaithfulness to God by way of corrupt worship and corrupt teaching is always depicted in Scripture by language such as adultery, harlotry, and whoredom. One naturally leads to the other. It's a reciprocal relationship. False worship of God or worship of false gods leads to immorality. And immorality spawns false worship. It's just a circular thing. False worship of God or worship of false gods inevitably, unavoidably, leads to actual physical immorality. And actual physical immorality causes men to avoid the true worship of God. Our text describes the false teachers with the word self-willed. The Greek word is authades, which is a compound word from auto, which means self, and hedonis, which is where we get the word hedonism, which means pleasure. And therefore, the false teachers are said to be driven in their presumptuous behavior by a drive for acts of self-pleasuring. We have a word for that in English, which I will not use in mixed company, but it starts with the letter M. It is irrational and brutish behavior. It is taking something that God has given as a gift to be treasured, and it is trampling it into the mud simply for one's own self-serving ends. The Bible very clearly states that sexual immorality always accompanies false worship. And as I just said, that is a reciprocal arrangement. Immorality leads to and bolsters false worship. So when we see a people entirely given over to uncleanness and immoral behavior, we will find that if they profess Christianity at all, it will always be a very, very polluted form of it. It will be Christian in name only, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And the converse will be true as well. When we see people entirely given over to corrupt worship and false teaching and fiercely defending it, you can bet your bottom dollar that they are a grossly immoral people. That's why I fear so much of what passes in our day for contemporary worship, because the central feature of it is self-pleasure. And when I see people who are entirely absorbed in the pursuit of self-pleasure, I can only assume that the Bible's judgment is correct, that they have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Now let's look back to our text and see how the false teachers are described. They are said to be spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now let's break that down into its component parts. They're like spots or blemishes. They're like stains on the good reputation of the church. In our text last Sunday, we read that because of their deceitful ways, they cause the way of truth, to be blasphemed. Every time one of these Elmer Gantry-type preachers gets busted, 
We find out that there was enough immorality going on behind the scenes to make a grown man vomit. B, they feast with you. Now, if my knowledge of church history is accurate, this means that they shared in the church's sacrament of the table and fellowship meals afterwards, which is what we would call potlucks. In other words, they ingratiated themselves to church members by hanging around with the people during intimate church functions. C, they were called their carousing in their deceptions, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Now, as we just saw, the false teachers engage in the church's life of fellowship, but not out of love for the brethren, but from ulterior motives. They're not, you know, people persons. They're on the prowl, grooming new followers for their unclean ways. D, they have hearts trained in covetous practices. Now that is a statement that exposes their true culpability. Because you could say that some of these deceivers out there, like the Hins or the Copelands or something, are just, they're grossly mistaken and ill-informed about the teachings of Scripture. But that doesn't do justice to reality. The false teacher's knowledge or ignorance of the the doctrines of the Christian faith is really beside the point. The Bible and its contents are nothing but props to them anyway. For them to get their hook into the unsuspecting, or as our text says, the unstable souls. Now, do I really need to repeat the importance of reading and studying the Bible? Do I really need to reiterate the importance of faithful attendance at the preaching of God's Word? Well, actually I do. That's what Peter is doing in this chapter. And it's also the unspoken assumption behind a phrase like unstable souls. Why are they unstable? E, they follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, earlier in our text, we saw that phrase, wages of unrighteousness, and there it was used as the reward for their wickedness. But this time, the phrase wages of unrighteousness means the money made by their unrighteous ways. I don't have to tell you how lucrative a business false teaching is. Weird, heretical books like Jesus Calling or Good Morning, Holy Spirit have sold millions of copies, whereas some of the greatest theological books ever written or ever published in the English language have been out of print since the early 1800s. If I were to query the most solid Reformed ministers in the world about great books that could be republished, I'm sure they'd all agree with me that some of the great works by men like Amandus Paulinus or Wolfgang Musculus would be a great gift to Christ's church. What are the odds that we'll see those republished in our lifetime? Not very good, but I'm sure we'll get another 37 iterations of Prayer of Jabez or something. Now, nothing I'm saying is out of spite or anger. Well, maybe out of anger for the cause of God, but it isn't personal rancor. The simple fact is, millions of dollars pounds, euros, francs, and pesos have been thrown into the coffers of men who use the name of God as a tool to serve themselves and to finance their self-pleasuring lifestyles. And they have done this on the backs of professing Christians whose own ministers have frequently gone without. I have a very distinct uh, memory about some famous, and I say famous because I never heard of him, and I still couldn't tell you his name, a famous preacher who came to the Philippines and he was going to be there for a grand total of two nights in some open-air venue in Manila. And his organization spent what had to have been multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars on giant full-color posters, pictures of his face, 
that were plastered all over Manila. There's an elevated train that runs through Manila, and the pillars of this track had anywhere from four to ten of these posters stuck on for miles and miles and miles. Never mind the buildings, the walls, and the overpasses. It was a colossal waste of the Lord's money. I have no trouble saying that this minister's, this man's organization blew enough money for two days to support several hundred missionaries for a lifetime. And not only did they blow a ton of money, they created a huge garbage crisis of mountains of worthless posters that littered the streets after the two days of meetings were over. Now, my point is simply this. All over the world, honest and faithful ministers are leaving their pastorates. They are taking on part-time or even full-time jobs to supplement their ministry and their life because they don't make enough. Meanwhile, the charlatans on TV take in enough money to build homes with built-in amusement park rides and golden toilet plumbing. And that brings us to our final point. They are made for destruction like animals for the butcher. This is why I spent so much time at the beginning of the sermon on the rather obvious point that animals are not people and people are not animals. When the God-ordained distinction between man and beast is obscured, then a statement like that in our text either doesn't make sense or doesn't pack enough punch. Now, for you farmers, I can at least assume that this makes sense to you. No one sheds tears of grief when they butcher a cow or a sheep. The only reason cows exist is because they serve man for food or clothing. None of you have 300 head of cattle as pets. It may sound, you know, it may be somewhat gruesome to think about for the sissified, namby-pamby animal activists with blue hair and man buns, but it is a simple fact that the reason we raise cattle, sheep, swine, chickens, or turkeys, is to kill them. They're raised for no other purpose. All of the effort that goes into their care, their cages, their pens, their shelter, their feed, it's so that they grow big and they live long enough to grow big enough to kill for food. And this is neither unfair, immoral, or unjust. These creatures are our food, and we have no reason to feel guilty about treating them as food. It is a fact of life that farmers have known for 6,000 years. Now, why stress all of this again? Well, because... The kicker of our text is the comparison God is making between false teachers and animals meant for destruction. And as our text is saying, it is saying something quite direct. Just like you don't raise cattle as pets or as members of your family, but for the slaughter, likewise God has ordained the existence of false teachers merely to destroy them in his justice. Now, there's a combination of factors that come into play here. On the one hand, God says that the existence of false teachers serves to show who is and isn't faithful to his covenant. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, we read, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
God uses the existence of false teachers to winnow his church and to blow the chaff away. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19 says, There must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be recognized among you. What the scripture is telling us is that when we see false teachers, we shouldn't be surprised at their existence or at their large numbers. Nor should we be surprised by the fact that they subvert the faith of of, of some. Their whole purpose under the providence of God is to afford a trial of faith and to give the opportunity for it to be approved. As we just saw in Deuteronomy 13, God warned his church that the false teachers would arise and that the whole point was to test their faithfulness to God's covenant. This means that attractive leaders are not always led by God. New ideas from inspiring people may sound good, but we must judge them by whether or not they are consistent with God's word. Throughout the history of the church, heresies have forced us to formulate more carefully and more clearly what we mean to say by the words that we employ. In the first four centuries of church history, the heresies of Marcion, Arius, Nestorius, Sibelius, and others drew forth from the early fathers the great creeds of Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalcedon. During the Reformation area, the remonstrance prompted the Synod of Dort. And this is perhaps one of the greatest services of heresy for the true church. It forces us to think clearly. We are required by the situation in which we find ourselves to declare the whole counsel of God and not in an uncertain sound. Now, we've probably all heard that familiar refrain, doctrine divides. Yeah, I think it's true. I just deny that it's a bad thing. It is supposed to divide. It is supposed to sift us out and show who among us is walking in truth and who is walking in intentional error. Did I just say intentional? Yes. Whenever we see heresy or schism spoken of in the Bible, it is always stated or directly implied that the schismatics are intentionally deviating from the doctrine handed down to them. And let me say, there is no love in letting a person live in error. It is not loving to let someone drag unsuspecting souls into hell by damnable heresies because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Now, you may not like me because I'm too brash or too rude when I warn you not to drive any further because the bridge is out. But if you ignore my warning, you're going into the river to a certain death. My demeanor, whether I was construed as nice or as a jerk, is irrelevant to the fact that you're dead because you ignored a truthful warning. The simple fact is, when people appeal to love against doctrine, they are betraying their secret belief that doctrine is unimportant. And that's the one thing our passage won't let us say. There's a story where Martin Luther says that, just like in the days of the apostles, we are forced to hear people say that, that we offend against love and unity in the church because we reject their doctrine. Wouldn't it be better, they say, if we just let it pass? I mean, it's, it's a non-essential anyway, as they call it. And, and therefore, why should we stir up so much discord and contention over the church over one or two doctrines, and not the most important ones at that? Isn't that fruitful and unnecessary? And Luther said, to this I reply, Cursed be that love and unity which cannot be preserved except at the peril of the word of God. 
Now, we've actually focused more on the fact that heresy under God's providence serves the church by making her think straight and define her terms. But the force of our text is really that, while all of this may be true, the false teachers themselves have been raised up by God, like as God said to Pharaoh, in order that their destruction be a demonstration of his power and glory. There's an interesting parallel in Peter's epistles. In 1 Peter 1... Speaking of God's elect, Peter writes that God has, quote, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what I particularly want you to notice is that phrase, reserved in heaven for you. He is saying that even before he created us, he had a glorious inheritance reserved for his elect. And in exactly a corresponding opposite, 2 Peter 2.17 declares that for the false teachers, God has reserved blackness of darkness forever. Just as God ordained his elect unto eternal life in Christ Jesus and has reserved their place in heaven... He has ordained the reprobate to eternal destruction and has reserved their place in the darkness of hell forever. And that's what our passage means when it says that they are like brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. Now, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us in the safety of God's word if we value the word as the gift that it is. Scripture is the very word of God spoken by the mouth of his prophets and apostles, preserved by his sovereign care and placed in our hands. In it are the exceeding great and precious promises. Indeed, all things that pertain to life and godliness. 